Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. All opinions are those of the speakers. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. We would like to welcome everybody to Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum, podcast number 29. And boy, do we have somebody we're excited about today. Um, let me present to you Taya Gherkin. He is a Bay Area guitarist and has enchanted audiences ever since coming onto the acoustic fingerstyle scene in the late 1990s. Initially influenced by guitarists such as John Renborn, Michael Hedges, and Leo Kotke, Thea ultimately began weaving together his diverse musical interest into a style of his own, releasing his debut album On My Way in 1999. And in the two decades since, he's released two others, uh, Postcards in 2005 and in 2020, duets with Doug Young, correct? That's correct. I'm good on that? Mm -hmm. Great. He's at ease in performance settings ranging from intimate house concerts to cafes, clubs, concert halls, and festival stages. He's performed at many of the Bay Area's top acoustic music venues, and these are legendary uh, Freight and Salvage, Great American Music Hall, and in Santa Barbara at Soho, uh, the Colony in Woodstock, New York, um, Club Passam in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, a really legendary club, um, and Argentina Music Series in Little Rock, Arkansas, Ar Boy, I blew that one, didn't I? Argenta, mu acoustic music series in Little Rock, Arkansas. Also in Berlin, Luxembourg. Festivals, Healsburg Guitar Festival, Winners, Santa Barbara Acoustic and Dresden Guitar Festivals. And besides all that, he's a writer. <laughs> if this isn't enough, I'm exhausted already. Um, <laughs> He's written about guitars, guitarists, and related subjects. He was the senior editor of Acoustic Guitar Magazine from 1997 to 2013. Boy, that ought to be a, a big gold star. Contributed to Guitar Player, Premier Guitar, Fretboard Journal. And in 2014, he co-founded Peghead Nation, an online e-learning environment with instruction for guitar, banjo, mandolin, ukulele, fiddle, bass, and dobro. I've been a client for, for Peghead for a long time. It's a wonderful thing to get to do. Um, you wrote the book, The Taylor Guitar. You did. You did. Um, I, the list is amazing. Tail, welcome. Um, Thank you. It's great to hang out with you guys. It's great to have, <laughs> it's, it's great to have you. It's always hard when you have a guest where you, when you run through their bio and their accomplishments, you feel like you're almost out of time for the. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, you know, it all strings together. <laughs> how'd you, uh, how'd you get started? What, 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 what uh, well, with, with the guitar, I mean, uh, my dad plays guitar, um, not particularly well but uh you know growing up i grew up in germany um yeah. start out there um uh you know my dad played a little guitar and he had some musician friends including a couple of professional musician friends um so people playing instruments wasn't something that was 
foreign to me. Uh, you know, people would come over and play guitars. It was your typical kind of, you know, uh, hippie scene, really. Um, and uh, so, what, what, you know, what, what, what time span? This is mid seventies. I was born in 1970. So, you know, I think from around my sixth birthday, I think uh, maybe five or six, I got a guitar and um, my dad would show me some chords some basic sort of first position chords and stuff. And that, you know, kind of went on like that for a while. And then um, a few years later, we moved uh, to Southern Germany near Munich and um, at that point, uh, I was a teenager, so I was a little bit more mobile on my own. And I would, from the town that we lived in, I could take the train into music, into 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 Munich. And there was a great uh, uh, sort of community music school there that I used to go, and I took a bunch of classes there in Munich. And that's kind of um, where I started to do a little finger picking and 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 that kind of thing, and um, just became more serious about it at that point. And then shortly thereafter, my family moved to California um, and I went to high school here in California. And that's kind of really when things started to, you know, take off a little bit more. I found I found another great teacher that I was taking private lessons with and I uh, was playing, you know, some electric guitar and some blues, but kept doing a little bit of basic finger picking and stuff. Um, but then it really wasn't until after college. Uh, I didn't study music in college, but it was sort of um, after college that I realized that I'm probably uh, in pretty deep in this. Um, uh, and um, I started, again, I've, I've been really fortunate to have a, a great string of, of teachers all along from you know doing the thing in Munich, to having a private teacher in my family moved up to Mendocino, north of here. I'm, I'm in the Bay Area now. Um, and I took lessons with this guy into each other at the Santa Barbara Festival, um, which was amazing because I hadn't seen him in almost 30 years. Um, and um, so that's kind of how I got into it. Just, uh, it was really just a personal interest. So the, really the, the spark that made it happen from something that I just did to something that might be um, something that I do for a living or that just sort of, you know, uh, becomes, becomes my life um, was when, when I went to a liberal arts college uh, called World College West. And it doesn't, it actually doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it used to be in Petaluma, California. And they had programs for uh, students to spend most of a year uh, living in a developing country. And I lived in Mexico, and the program was in the state of Michoacan, where uh, there's this great village called Paracho. Have you guys heard of Paracho? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So Paracho is a guitar making village. It's uh, just to this day, it's really the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's this entire village revolves around building guitars. There's literally hundreds of luthiers uh, and industry around it. There will be people who, I mean, they actually, I think I never saw it, but apparently they make strings there and there'll be guys there who all they do is make rosettes and all the luthiers buy their rosettes from you know this guy and and so there's this whole industry around it and so part of this college program that i was in was to live in a village 
live with a family and learn a craft. And so, hello, I said, I want to go to Paracho and learn to build a guitar. And um, we found a way to do it. And actually, since I figured there might be a little bit of a show and tell, uh, this is the guitar. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, here, someday I'll have to show you in person. Uh, I can't really say that I built this guitar. I was there while the <laughs> guy who I was living with and working with, Salvador Carlos Alapa, built this guitar. And he let me do a few steps here and there, but um, it's a really beautiful Palo Escrito back and sides. Um, it's actually, it looks like a cedar top, but it's actually a spruce top that, um, for mysterious reasons, we ended up dying uh, to look dark yellow, dark brown. Uh, it's a Brazilian rosewood fingerboard and bridge, and it's a you know it's a pretty nice guitar. I mean, I I, I performed with this guitar for a long time, um, so uh, I did that, and that sort of you know how could you not like living with a luthier and building a guitar for three months in in the mountains of Mexico. So I came back, that was my sophomore year in college, I came back, and I continued playing, I should say I haven't built a guitar since that experience, which is now 32 years ago. Um, but after college, I ended up uh, getting a job in a music store, uh, Tall Toad Music in Petaluma. And um, that was sort of my entry in doing something around guitars for a living. And um, I worked there for five years. And during that time, um, started to also get more serious about playing fingerstyle guitar and started gigging. So this would be between 92 and 97. Um, and things sort of started taking off from there. And it just kind of, um, I don't know, it was never really my plan to make the guitar what I do, but it sort of happened naturally. When, when you were in, in Germany, how were you finding music? Were there, were there stores or, you know, were you seeing, how were you finding, how was it finding? Well, it was, it was pretty limited, you know, and part of it was, I had no idea what was out there, you know, when, um, it was kind of like, you know, my dad was into kind of, you know, folk, folk rock and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Bob Dylan, um, but he did, uh, you know, my dad really was into uh, John Renborn and the Pentangle. And um, that to this day, I mean, if people ask me who is my number one guitar guy and it's Renborn and uh, Pentangle is probably my all time favorite band. So I started listening to some of that. I started listening to a little bit of classical guitar. Um, these classes that I was taking in Munich, we were kind of, you know, doing sort of the basic kind of folky repertoire. We'd learn like a finger picking thing to House of the Rising Sun. And I don't know, maybe we even did Freight Train or something like that. It's so long ago now, but uh, it was that kind of stuff. But it wasn't really at that time that I was diving deep into finding records or something. Um, it was pretty elementary. I, I don't imagine that the like the radio is what it was or what it is here now, you know, or was through the eighties and nineties here. Or well, if there know. was really interesting radio, I wasn't listening to it. You know, I mean, I was listening to mainstream radio and stuff. Uh, um, 
I didn't really, I, I didn't really, outside of sort of my dad's circle of friends, I didn't have, my peers didn't play guitar. I wasn't really, um, you know, it wasn't really that thing. But then, you know, I left Germany when I was 16. So it was pretty early. And um, when we came over here, I definitely, you know, playing guitar was sort of something that that made me meet people, you know, and 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 I made friends here that that played guitar, and that was something that we shared, and uh, and so in that way, it it became an important part of of growing up. Did you uh, uh, bring it over? Bring your guitar over from Germany? I do actually. I sh I should have brought that out here. It's in the it's in the <laughs> other part of the house now. I I um my first well my my very first guitar was a uh, Framus. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and I actually, um, it turns out, uh, unbeknownst to me, my folks brought it over years ago, and I found it in their attic uh, a couple of years ago. And it's it's in terrible shape. It's ba it's beyond repair, basically. I mean, you know, it's not it's not the kind of guitar that's worth restoring. Um, but my first sort of okay guitar, which I still have, is a uh, the guitar made by Hoyer. You ever heard of Hoyer? Mm -hmm. H-O-Y-E-R. Mm -hmm. I think it was a German company. This guitar was made in Japan. It's a copy of a Gibson Dove. It's got the red uh, back and sides, and it had the big pickguard on it, but it came off at some point. It's got the horrible adjustable Gibson style bridge, and it's got a really crude kind of Fender style bolt on neck. Um, uh, but I still have that, and you know, it's it's not a bad guitar. Uh, I, I, I could have done a lot worse. So that's really what I played. That's what I played through college, actually. Um, uh, and I actually have it set up as a high strung now. I occasionally use it. So, cool. so so I brought it over. Yeah. Yeah. You came to then college. You're a sophomore. Mm. You're living in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's in hindsight, it was kind of crazy. I mean, and Paracho is not, you know, it's a, I mean, this was, a, I was there in the winter of 1989 to 1990. Uh, at the time, the house, my, the family I lived with, they sort of had two houses, one that they lived in and one was the workshop. But the, the workshop house was also, I mean, it was a residence at one point, and that's actually where I lived. My room was in that house with a shop. Uh, and, you know, Mexico is, is odd that way. Like, the, it was basically a sort of modern house, but it had no running water. Um, so, you know, you would, they, a water truck would come every couple of weeks, and they, they would fill up these barrels and to, you know, bathe or whatever. Um, you, you know, you would take all these pants and everything like that. There was no shower or anything like that. They did, there, there was electricity because you can run wires easily. Um, but the street outside the house wasn't paved. So it was a dirt, dirt road outside. Uh, and, you know, Paracho isn't a tiny village. I mean, when I was living there, I think it was a size of about 10, 15,000 people living there. So, you know, not, not, not like super tiny. And, uh, and the main street, of course, was paved and you could take a bus to enter the larger city and stuff like that. But it was pretty interesting. Um, have, and you been have you been back? I have been back once, but it's also now 25 years ago. So I, I really want to go back. From what I hear, uh, the drug war is really taking a heavy toll on the on the town. Um, and uh, I was talking with um, um, uh, 
what's his name? Alejandro, guy from Santa Cruz, who also builds um, Alejandro Cervantes, who's from there. And he was saying that uh, things had really taken a turn. Um, so that's not good. So I, I don't know. I really hope to get back one day. Great. So you, you came up and, and you're you're working at Tall Toad. Is this yep. where you started making connections and getting more into the pretty the much? Yeah, I mean, so I started working at Tall Toad and um, uh, started getting into fingerstyle guitar and really, you know, a big a big sort of moment within that. I mean, first of all, I was exposed to all these guitars, right, which is great. Uh, not really, you know, by what we think of today as super high-end guitars, but we, you know, we carried Martins and Taylors, and uh, we were actually a Santa Cruz dealer for a very short time, but I forget why, but somehow it didn't work out for us. But, um, uh, you know, just being exposed to a lot of guitars, uh, which was super fun for, you know, um, and uh, but one sort of big moment for me as a developing player was uh, Chris Proctor would come and do these Taylor workshops once or twice a year. Are you guys familiar with Chris Proctor? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he is a really, really fine fingerstyle player. I think he won Winfield like in 82 or something like that. And he would come and do these Taylor workshops. And he was really the first guy that I was able to see play fingerstyle up close and I could ask questions. Like, I mean, I'd seen people perform, I'd seen Renborn perform, I'd seen other people perform, but it's different when you, you know, you can sit right there and you can chat afterwards and say, how did you do that? What tuning was that? You know, what, what are those pedals you're using? All that kind of stuff. So Chris was really sort of the first guy that I could really sort of geek out on guitars and pickups and fingerstyle technique. And he was really important in sort of that, uh, uh, you know, developing and, 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 you know, me becoming who I am really, uh, I, you know, I bought a, I bought a Taylor guitar similar to the one he had. I bought a sunrise pickup. I got a rain preamp that he was using. I basically sort of emulated his whole rig and, um, uh, you know, that, that took, took me quite a way sort of, you know, those like, whatever, like I said, he'd come once or twice a year and I, it would really sort of give me a boost every time. Um, and then it wasn't directly through working at the store, but uh, sort of my next connection with a really good player was I hooked up with Pepino D'Agostino. Mm. Um, and he he did come through as a because we were a seagull and godan dealer and i think he did a couple of godan classes but i already met him independently through uh, i think i went to see him play and somehow we hooked up and that was really great i mean i i took lessons with pepino for a couple of years and um i you know i really uh consider him one of my mentors you know he he took me under his wing and we did this funny thing where I went for my first lesson and I wrote him a check for the first four lessons or whatever. And then it turned out that he really needed computer help. And so we basically came up with this deal where we traded computer lessons for guitar lessons. Mm -hmm. And it became this really fun kind of friendship where I would go over to his house and we'd do a lesson for an hour. And then, you know, I'd show him things on his Mac for an hour. And that sort of ended up you know, then I'd stay for lunch or we would do something. And so it would turn into this whole afternoon, a whole evening thing. And that kind of went on for a couple of years. And it was really fun. And um, 
then you know he he as i was getting a more secure player he started having me open some shows for him and that kind of stuff and so that was really great and really important and in hindsight uh in hindsight it's even more special than it seemed like at the time i mean just to have that developship develop that relationship with someone who's a really good established player uh was just really great and and super important i think that that mentor that mentor relationship, it really is so many stories of, of people that for some reason or another hooked up with one of their idols. Yeah. You know, well, and the other thing is, you know, Pepino was really well connected and still is, of course. So I'd go over there for my lesson and it turned out that like, you know, Tim Sparks was staying at his house while he's playing in town, you know, so I'd, I'd meet people through Pepino and stuff like that. And it really kind of, opened some doors and uh, and i'm you know really thankful to him for that i the first time i saw him i saw him really in a small house concert and he yeah. blew my mind just oh he's amazing and he's <laughs> so he's very positive and you know so so that was that was really important and uh, basically all the tunes that are on my first cd on postcards are sort of tunes that we worked on during our lessons. I mean, I would sort of bring in these fairly half-baked ideas and he'd sort of help me finish them up and, you know, turn them into, into tunes that I could record. So we, you know, in a way, he almost sort of produced the CD. Uh, in, in, he wasn't directly involved, but, you know, that, that CD wouldn't be what it is without sort of him helping me shape all that stuff up. So that was back in 1999. So it's, you know, uh, it was a long time ago. So to kind of keep this threat going. So I worked at Toll Toad for about five years. And um, through that time, I think through through Pepino, I had met uh, Dylan Shora, who at the time was the um, uh, music editor for Acoustic Guitar. And we had hooked up, we might've played a couple of gigs together of some kind. Um, and um, Acoustic Guitar started uh, posting a position for a gear editor, which was a new position for them. And Dylan let me know about it and I applied for it. And I interviewed for it with Jeff Rogers um, at one of the first Healdsburg Guitar Festivals. It would have been the 1997 Healdsburg Guitar Festival when it was still up in the villa in Santa Cruz, in, 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 in Healdsburg. And um, I ended up getting the job. And um, so I quit Tall Toad and did that. And started out as the gear editor for the magazine and then eventually became senior editor and that went through for 17 years wow so and you know through that of course you work for a magazine you meet a lot of people and uh, it did help me sort of get more established in the fingerstyle scene i ended up you know uh, meeting a lot more players and getting more actively involved in the bay area guitar scene and and hosting people from out of town and doing things like that so uh yeah it, it kind of you know one thing led, led to another well i'm sure that also gives you a lot of industry connections and uh well yeah of course uh, you know that that sounds wonderful yeah i mean I, so i probably met richard hoover you know shortly after working for acoustic guitar probably the first nam show i went to with acoustic guitar which would have been 98 certainly i'd gone to nam before because i would I, I went to a couple of nam shows with with tall toad music um but really going to nam with with ag you know i i'd meet everybody yeah so you know that is really a way to say that uh <laughs> 
probably since that NAMM show in 1998, um, you know, I've been deep into it and have basically met, you know, all the people in the industry uh, uh, who, you know, who are, who are part of this community. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So, and then at some point you decided to strike out on your own and, and create uh, this new entity that you're involved with. Again. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the decision was ultimately made for me. Um, <laughs> ultimately, you know, uh, AG being in print publishing um, had to make some adjustments. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I, I don't know where they're at in terms of their adjustments, but part of the adjustments to adjusting to the to to the reality of uh, of digital of the digital world was uh, to really shrink the editorial staff in 2013. And uh, um, I ended up being laid off. Uh, you know, it sort of was this thing where I was part time for a while. And then in the end, I was laid off, which ultimately was a blessing in disguise. Uh, because my two partners in Peghead Nation, Scott Nygaard and Dan Gable, who were also at Acoustic Guitar, left around the same time. We all left AG within like a three-month period or something like that. And uh, we decided it was time to start something new together. And it really is, you know, it, it's a team effort. Uh, Peghead Nation is not something I could have done on my own. Um, uh, and I'm just incredibly fortunate and lucky to you know have this team to be working with people who i've now i have a almost 25 year history of working with dan and scott mm. the uh um the names the name is brilliant <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> is that a, is that a bar napkin or is that a nam thing or <laughs> you know we we really tried to think i think dan ultimately came up with with a name we you know we knew from the start we didn't want to be just guitar so it, it basically couldn't have the name guitar in it um and uh you know we played around with all kinds of different acoustic this acoustic that but um so we came up with peghead nation and um it it worked <laughs> you know you got to have a name <laughs> yeah you got to call mean, it, you got to call it something you know? it is a little bit of torture you know when you, when you have this idea and you're already working on your business plan but you still don't really have a name that sticks so it was a, it was a good day when we finally decided <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could go back and rename all those documents that we've been yeah. writing right we no, can but, find them again but so ultimately, you know, um, super fortunate um, to, you know, have, find myself in this team with people who, you know, who I've worked with for a long time, who I think, you know, all, all three of us, uh, we're, I mean, we're friends, obviously, um, but we also know each other's strengths. And, uh, you know, starting from scratch doing something has really allowed us to to do that. And so we have fairly well-defined roles, even though there's, you know, always crossover. I mean, there's, other than the instructors that contribute to the lessons, it is just the three of us. We don't have a staff. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of crossover of things that we do. Um, and, you know, Working at Acoustic Guitar was amazing for the first 10 years. It was really a dream job. Um, you know, like, I, like we've said, I've got to meet so many people. I've got to learn so much, uh, make so many friends in the, in the industry. Um, 
But towards the end, uh, you know, as things started to sort of, well, I don't want to say deteriorate, but definitely, you know, as things became harder in the print publishing world, uh, and I had been doing things for, for as long as I had, um, it was time to move on. And uh, but it's hard to move on when you basically like what you're doing. So, like I said, being laid off ended up being a blessing in disguise, and it sort of allowed us to do this, uh, this this thing that's been really great. So interestingly, being an editor at Acoustic Guitar Magazine, it gave you an opportunity to kind of see where um, the the technology and the industry was moving. Uh, during a period of time where, like you say, the print media was dying mm -hmm. out, digital was becoming more common. Um, how did that play into the development or, or I guess I want to say, how did that um, affect what your decisions were about what you wanted Peghead Nation to be? Uh, well, we knew from the start that we weren't going to be a, a print publication. Uh, <laughs> that's really that's really the, the biggest takeaway from it. We decided you know, basically right away that the main focus was going to be on instruction. Um, and uh, so for me that, you know, that changed my role quite a bit because at acoustic guitar for, you know, the first nine or 10 years, gear was all I did. Uh, you know, I do all the gear demos, I would either write them or oversee them and edit all, all the stuff. Um, whereas now, uh, you know, my main role is, uh, my main role is a video producer. Um, you know, I, I, I am at most of the shoots and I edit almost all the video. Um, and uh, so that really is fundamentally, I am the producer, that, that's what I do. Um, but I also still do all the gear related stuff i do mo the majority of ins of guitar demos um you know shooting them and i also uh am still the person who is in touch with the manufacturers with the luthiers who will represent peghead nation at a nam show or a guitar festival and that sort of thing so um that has sort of really expanded what I do. I do less writing. Um, you know, I don't, we don't do like feature length articles and things like that. And uh, uh, so that, that was a big change sort of turning, you know, uh, into more of a, a video person than a, someone who writes a lot. Uh, so, and that is kind of, um, I think that's a bit of a sign of the times. I mean, we've, you know, we, we, we started out doing, a bit more kind of article type uh, features on Peghead Nation. And it wasn't that popular. I think people really want the video content with things. And so again, since it's only the three of us, uh, we have to, we have to focus on what works. Uh, and, you know, the video and certainly the instruction element of things is what works for us. And it's been working well. So we're, you know, very, very fortunate. Moved into the uh, corporate office tower and all that uh, good stuff. Um, well, <laughs> of course, of course, uh, you know also known as a corner of my garage where I'm sitting right now. Uh, so, you know, we, I mean, I'm joking, but we literally, uh, you know, we shot video in basically where I am right now for the first several years of Peghead Nation. Um, we 
last year, just before the pandemic hit, moved into a great video studio in San Rafael. Uh, that's part of uh, kind of a multimedia uh, building, multi-use building there. Um, and of course, we moved in there last January, and then the pandemic hit, and uh, we weren't able to, I mean, the building was off limits for several months, basically, I, and I set myself back up here in the garage, so at least I could shoot gear demos. Um, and uh, I started going back in probably last fall just to do shoots on my own, but we certainly still couldn't fly in instructors to shoot in there. Uh, but fortunately, that is just starting to ramp up. We just had uh, Aaron Weinstein from New York, uh, who does an amazing uh, court melody mandolin workshop for us in, and um, uh, we're actually starting a course, a fingerstyle and open tunings course with Doug Young. And so we did a session with him last week and uh, we've got more stuff scheduled. So it's really great to sort of get back to being in the space. Uh, we don't have an actual office. We each work from our home offices. So having the studio is kind of a, the closest thing we have to to a central location. Uh, and actually, I almost uh, I almost went there to do this today because I had some other things going on, but I didn't make it over there in time. So here I am back in my garage. <laughs> and just before we started, we were saying that this is the 29th podcast that yep. Richard and I have put together. Um, do you know how many lessons and reviews and everything else Peghead Nation has put out at this point? Do you have like chalk marks on the board or something? Uh, we don't, but we are up to almost 40 courses uh, on the different instruments. Um, you know, it's, it's thou I mean, I've hit the upload button thousands of times uh we have i mean we get uh you know our video host gives us these you know, i can see how many videos we have up there and i think i don't know i think we might be up to like eight thousand videos or something like that it's wow. pretty crazy because uh, you know each lesson is usually broken down into between two and five little sections and so you know and there's updates every month for most courses so it's a lot of material i do we basically have a new gear demo every week so you know in the last six seven years it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that is a lot of stuff That's staggering <laughs> yeah it's a lot of it's a, i mean every now and then I, like i said i will see those stats you know from our video hosts and i was like it's like another thousand it's like and i was like yeah i hit the upload button for every single one of those <laughs> so, uh, yeah uh, so it's been really satisfying and um you know it's it's um we were i mean speaking of you know COVID and the pandemic we were incredibly fortunate in that you know we offered a service that people suddenly were looking for more than they were before. I mean, you know, we've been very fortunate in that we've had consistent growth throughout. And, uh, you know, Peghead Nation has worked from the beginning, basically. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been really, really fortunate for us. Uh, but we definitely saw a spike um, like last May, just after the, the shutdown. Um, and, you know, not only has it been satisfying for us to be able to keep working through this time um it's been really great to have 
to provide something to our instructors you know everyone's gigs went away and stuff like that so for 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 those instructors who would otherwise just rely on playing shows and things like that pegat nation really became something of a of a steady source of revenue that and you know being able to do that for people has been really satisfying that's great that's really yeah. great yeah. How, how many how many instruments do you have on pegat nation right now uh, let's see, we have guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, ukulele, upright bass, and dobro, I think. So what's that, seven? Did I miss one? I don't think I did. Well, it's related, but uh, we, we just started doing an octave mandolin course as well, but I guess that falls under mandolin. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's been really great. Uh, and, you know, on the guitar side, um, uh, you know, I host this acoustic, this uh, advanced fingerstyle workshop, um, which we kind of, we put on hold a little bit, but there's 15 great lessons in there where I'm hosting players, including Eric Sky, who's, who's got a great lesson on there with us. Um, Scott Nygaard's got uh, a couple of great flat picking courses. Uh, Matt Monasterio is doing an early jazz, roots jazz uh, course. Orville Johnson's doing a... Uh, a couple of blues courses. Mark Goldenberg has a court theory course that's incredible. Um, uh, I've know, taken I've taken Mark's class. It yeah, is, it's wow. Yeah, uh, and you know the I mean the fun thing about you know one of the fun things about doing this is you know I'm at all the shoots, so just being in the room, being in the presence of people like Mark, like any any pick any one of our instructor people who are at the top of their game in that particular genre or whatever they're teaching doing it really well and enjoying it right is a really special thing uh you know to to see mark going through all these courts and basically going through all the lessons that he used to take with ted green right and um and explain this stuff and it's you know, I mean, Mark's course especially was pretty mind blowing because he just does it all off the top of his head. He didn't come in with like any notes or any like outline. He would just come in and say, "Yeah, today we're going to do triads in these positions," and you know, he spent the next hour just talking about all those things. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, but really, every single one of our instructors is like that in that they, um, you know, it's beyond being qualified. It's they're they're people who are at the top of the game in whatever they're doing. Uh, you know, Marla Feibisch doing Irish mandolin. Uh, there, there, there isn't a better Irish mandolin player on the scene than her. And it's just really fantastic. More of a Zen thing. Yeah, it's so, you know, that's really fun and really satisfying is, is to be part of that. But of course, we have to say that, you know, this simply isn't enough to keep you busy. You're still out performing and recording <laughs> stuff. Uh <laughs> Well, it certainly that has slowed down a bit over the last year. Um, but yes, so I still, uh, you know, I, I perform as much as I can. Uh, Pre-pandemic, that usually meant, I don't know, two or three times a month or something like that. Primarily here in the Bay Area. I mean, it's pretty rare that I go out of town, but it does happen. Um, and... Uh, you know, I've put together a lot of kind of fingerstyle guitar night type shows with visiting players doing like a round robin of playing. And I hosted a couple shows like that that were recurring shows. I did a thing at the Bazaar Cafe in San Francisco that I hosted for 12 years once a month. And I did another one. 
up here. I live up here in Fairfax in Marin. Uh, I did one at a club called The Sleeping Lady that that closed down, unfortunately, uh, for six or seven years. Um, and I've hosted these kinds of shows. I mean, you mentioned some of the venues, you know, I, uh, I've done them at the Freight. I've done them at the Throckmorton in Mill Valley. I've done them, uh, you know, different house concerts and, and all that kind of stuff. So that is a great thing. And I, I sure hope that uh, a version of that will come back. Um, you know, I've played a couple of times now since the pandemic and it's great uh but i have a feeling that the rest of this year is going to keep staying a little weird in terms of booking things and stuff so so now i've got this duo with doug young and that's kind of you know i'm in terms of playing out that's kind of my focus i'm trying to get us playing as much as we can but uh you know we've got a couple of things on the book so if uh if anybody watching has not seen one of the the shows the, the the shows in the round the guitars in the round it's um it's worth a look they're a ton of fun yeah it, it's certainly worth a look i mean the online ones were really were fun but of course they're even funner when you can do it in real life so uh, well, and you know going back to some of my connections when i was you know working with acoustic guitar uh you know people would contact me from out of town they're coming through the bay area and just saying, hey, can you can we put something together? And a lot of times, I will try to do things, uh, you know. Uh, and and I've, we've done some great shows that way. So, Excellent. yeah. Uh, do you have time? I, I we both know you're an avid biker. <laughs> um, yes. Anything else? about the guitar and things I, well you know we're, speaking of peghead nation actually if listeners want to check out the check out the site we actually we, we can provide we can do a promo code so people can uh, can check it out for a month for free so people can um if you want to use a promo code just santa cruz uh, as you check out uh, you can get a month of any course for free uh, uh, so that'll uh -huh. be a special santa cruz promo code for for podcast listeners oh what a, that's what, yeah, yeah, we will have links to everything, including. Yeah, so you can link, and if if you want to include the promo code in, you know, in whatever you're writing up for it, uh, you can totally do that. So that that would be really fun. We'd love to have people from the podcast checking us out. W wonderful, thank you. What yeah. a, what a, what a, what a, what, a, what a nice offer. Mm -hmm. um, of course. When when you go about to to review a guitar, mm -hmm. what do you look for? <laughs> I look for different, you know, I, I mean, I start the first thing, of course, I mean, if you open the case and, you know, you, you, you form an opinion right away, right? Because you, you see the thing, but I tend to, I mean, the first thing I, I look at the guitar and I kind of look at what is it made out of and how is it, you know, um, how, how well is it put together, right? You see the little craftsmanship things and stuff right away when you've been doing it for a long time. Um, in terms of playing and the sound i you know there's really two things involved there is do i like the guitar but ultimately whether i like the guitar isn't that important i really try to put myself into the mindset of who would this guitar be good for that's that's that that's that's what that's what i'm really interested in because you um, really do have to maintain some kind of 
Because if, well, for one thing, if I only reviewed guitars that I like, I mean, I like a lot of guitars, um, so maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm proving myself wrong right here, but, uh, but it's not really about me, right? It's, I mean, I'll say something like, you know, this really worked well for whatever I'm doing. Um, but for, for starters, I don't believe in the, the best guitar doesn't exist, right? Uh, because it's different for everybody or it's different. It might not be different for everybody. Um, for example, Doug Young and I play very similarly and we tend to agree on what we like, right? Um, but, um, you know, Scott Nygaard and I don't necessarily think the same guitars are great because he is a, a flat picker and he plays totally different from the way I play. Um, and so we have different needs for a guitar, right? And uh, so I try to think like, you know, if, if I'm reviewing a guitar that, like say I'm reviewing a Dreadnought and it might not have the kind of response that I look for in a fingerstyle guitar, but I can see that it would really be a fantastic guitar if it's driven a little harder. Um, I'm going to write about that. Or I'm going to talk about that because that's why we have so many guitars is to kind of find out who something is good for. And so I, you know, I try to think of like something that, that might have a sound that I think would sound really good for accompanying vocals or in an ensemble context, uh, being a solo guitar player, I tend to look for a really rich sounding guitar that will work great on its own. Um, but some of the guitars that I might really like, uh, might get drowned out in an ensemble context you know you might want something that has a little bit more of a narrow range of a sound that kind of fits into a pocket in a, in a little different way um so i really kind of try to i mean it's easiest if i pick up a guitar and i go like wow this is exactly what i like to play you know then 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 that's easy then uh but um just because i don't like something for my own playing doesn't mean that it's not good. And I think that's a really important thing to kind of figure out uh, if you're in my position, demoing and reviewing a lot of guitars. It's, you know, my, my personal opinion for what I like um, is, only, is only a small niche of what an instrument might do. Now, when it comes to craftsmanship and playability and things like that, um, it becomes more of a, a hard and fast kind of thing, right? I mean, if, if the craftsmanship is sloppy, uh, I think that should be pointed out um, because um, that affects everybody. Um, but then again, you know, a lot of things are really cosmetic only, right? I mean, if there are things that really don't affect the quality of the guitar in terms of the functionality, um, you know, like when I was working, when I first started reviewing guitars, I would always look for like little drops of glue inside the guitar and stuff like that. And, you know, yes, on a really high end custom guitar, it's really nice when it's super clean inside, right? You're, you're paying all that money. And I think it is a sign of a certain level of care that, and attention to detail. Does it really matter if there's a blob of glue next to the curving? It probably doesn't. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's, uh, and you know, certainly the, the, the cost of an instrument will also affect that. You know, you can't, you can't judge a $300 guitar the same way that you would judge a $15,000 guitar. So I think I, I recall a couple of reviews where you've done that, where you had a review of a guitar and you've had Scott come in Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, emphasize the qualities of the guitar. We really like doing that. 
Yeah, but let me put you on the spot. Have you ever had somebody send something in for review where you pulled it out and you played it and you just said, there's no way in hell I'm going to do this? Yes. Um, it, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. No, no, no. It, it hasn't happened, uh, since we started doing the Peghead Nation thing. Um, possibly because most of the instruments that we get in are fairly high end. Uh, you know, we, we work with our partners such as Santa Cruz, you know, uh, Santa Cruz is not going to send me a guitar that isn't going to work. Right. right uh loudon isn't going to send me a guitar like that thompson isn't going to send me a guitar like that right it's it's a level of guitars where really it is about finding sort of they're all good guitars there's no question about that right um i had i've had guitars sent to me where i they would arrive and they just weren't playable it was usually a playability thing and i would go how did that make it past someone in quality control you know, it would be super buzzy or it would be, you know, either the action is really high or really low. Maybe it could have happened in shipping. Uh, and usually what I would do is I would get in touch with them and ask, ask to send another one because it was an obvious flaw that I can't assume that they're all like that and I can't pan somebody because of that. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of my take on that. That's really, uh, rep, um, uh, that's great. You know, I mean, if I walked into a store and I saw five of those and they all had that same problem, you can base an opinion on that. But, you know, stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Stuff happens. So, so that's, that's kind of that. Uh, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I have... <laughs> I have reviewed and demoed a lot of guitars in 25 years. <laughs> well, and, and you've been in a very unique position um, in terms of electronics and recording and microphones mm. and amps. In 25 years, those things have changed a fair bit. We're getting into a lot of solid state stuff, a lot of modeling, a lot of uh, impulse response. and, and yeah. I mean, what, they, what do you think about what that is do, happening right they, now? What, they have they have changed and they haven't really changed that fundamentally, you know? I mean, I think sort of just before I got into this game, that's sort of when the big changes happened. Um, but, you know, still most guitars have an undersaddle pickup in it and they've gotten better. Um, but I think the Fishman Matrix was already out when I worked at Tall Toad. Uh, and it's still the number one selling pickup out there. Um, so yes, things have changed and different systems have come along. I mean, in a way, it's kind of funny because my own personal rig has changed very little in 15 years or something like that. Uh, Still paying it off at Tall Toad? <laughs> well, here's the fun thing about Tall Toad. I still I haven't worked at Tall Toad since I started working at, at acoustic guitar. So it's almost 25 years. Uh, they still give me my employee discount. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's uh, I love that store. Um, and um, but you know, in in terms of stuff, it's great to geek out with all kinds of different things. The kind of gigs I play, I don't tend to have a lot of time to futz around with my setup when I show up. And I just need stuff to work. And 
I don't want to be there tweaking knobs and setting parameters and trying out different things when I'm at the gig. So um, fundamentally, my uh, setup has been um, uh, bags anthems in my main steel string guitars. And uh, I have a Bags Pair-DI preamp, um, you know, the one that everyone is using. It's been around for 20 years. And there are some things that sort of drift in and out. Like I've used a couple of different reverb pedals. I like having reverb on my board. Just again, you know, if all you play is really nice venues, you don't need any other stuff. You put a mic in front of the guitar and you're done. Um, or you give them a DI and you let the engineer figure out what reverb to use. I get to play those places occasionally and it's great um but i might also play a total in the trenches gig in some coffee shop where the you know there's no monitors and the you know whatever it's got a 40 year old pv head and some mystery speaker right well you still have to be able to sound okay with that and i've seen too many situations where people had really complicated setups that just took way too long to dial in at the gig and maybe didn't even sound very good in sort of a less than ideal situation. Um, and so I like to be able to get 90% of the, of the way there almost all the time and maybe a little better some of the time, but I prefer that over getting there 100% of the time occasionally and just really not getting there at all the rest of the time. Uh, so for me, you know, just having a basic setup set up with a parody eye and either an anthem. I also have a Fishman Rare Earth blend in a couple of guitars. And for some situations, having the magnetic pickup is really great, um, especially larger stages with no sound checks um, uh, or situations where you're playing like occasionally I'll play. I'll back up a singer songwriter, say, and um if they're using a guitar with an under saddle pickup, um, having a second guitar sound with a magnetic is a really great thing because it gives you a totally different voice and a different sound quality. And so for those kind of things, that can be really great. Yeah. I'm just realizing what, what a great benefit or boon that would be to be able to say, uh, no, dear, it's just here for review. Um, <laughs> well, I, do, I, do, I do that all the time i mean there's so much stuff there's so much stuff coming through here all the time it's kind of ridiculous um yeah uh, well it, but, if you if you were to ignore travel and paycheck what yeah. is your what is your ideal gig my ideal gig yeah if, well, if, you did, if, if you're ignoring the travel issues ignoring whether you're going to get paid or not you know just what's your well it's 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 you know it's a gig with great listeners i mean it could be a, it could be a house concert you know it, it does, it's not about the size of the gig you know i mean some of my all-time favorite gigs were house concerts with 20 people uh you know if if that's the thing if that's the vibe you can play you know with no electronics you just sit there and play and it can be really great but yeah playing a great performing arts center with 500 people that's really nice uh um you know and i've sort of I've only done that a handful of times, but I've tasted the blood to know it. It's really nice. <laughs> um, uh, you know, yeah, that's really great. It's, of course, really fun to um, share a gig with other 
players who are friends and who are great players uh maybe you know people who are who you look up to um i you know probably my all-time favorite tour that i did um well, I've done a couple, but uh, you know, I did a I did Peter Finger's International Guitar Night tour in Germany um, back in 20, 2005, I think, and that was me, Peter Finger, uh, Konar Agredi from India, who's amazing, and Dylan Fowler, who's a, a wonderful player from Wales, and you know, we we did a week of different things in Germany, and we played really nice venues, and. You know, I was the weakest link on that tour, um, but it was just really encouraging and fun and uplifting to play with people who do this all the time. I mean, I play guitar all the time, but I don't tour all the time, right? It's I have, I've been really lucky in that my day job has been everything I do is related to the guitar, right? So I, you know, I've I, for the last thirty years I haven't done anything professionally that wasn't directly tied into this thing that I love doing. Um, but I've never made my living only playing guitar, um, and so you know, it, it's it's a big deal for me to go out and tour in Germany for a week or something like that. You know, it's not something that it just sort of happens twice a year or something like that. Uh, so those things are really uplifting. That's great. You know, I, I love that. But back to your original question, you know, it's really about having a receptive listening audience that, that makes a great gig. And whether it's 20 people or 500 people, um, doesn't really matter. You know, and I, I really do feed off the, you know, being with my peers and, and you know, sharing this music with other players. And, uh, you know, I really like the round robin thing of kind of um, feeding off that. You know, I've done a lot of shows with Eric Sky like that. And, and uh, it's, you know, the camaraderie is definitely a big aspect of it. Very nice. Very nice. We, uh, it, we've talked to Richard Hoover about that, that, nam camaraderie that that comes yeah. up and, and and that seems to be like the the flashpoint for everybody that they know they're all going to see each other at this one period of time right you know absolutely yeah, yeah. oh it's it, it's it's an important part of this uh for sure that community it's, yeah yeah i you know i think one thing i'd like to maybe go out on is is again i'm really impressed with your um experience both as a musician a teacher a, a business person a, a technologist a, a whatever else you want to add, add on to that list it seems like at the center of all this has been the acoustic guitar well and that's really go ahead well i'll say if you were to take all that experience and and look ahead five years or ten years uh ignoring pandemics and all that kind of stuff how do you see this whole thing going? Where do you see it evolving into? What, what's, what are your projections into the future of all this? Well, as we've learned last year, any projections are bound to go off the rails, right? Um, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. And the, the truth is, I mean, I was saying earlier how, you know, this whole becoming a, a music professional, if you want to call it that, you know, I didn't sit down when I was 19 saying, you know, in 10 years, I really hope to be a music professional. Um, 
And it sort of has kept going like that. I've been really fortunate that sort of, you know, one door closes, another opens and things happen that, that some of, you know, some of the things I make happen and other things, I think I've just been really fortunate. And so I don't really have this crystal ball. I mean, I'm having a great time with Peghead Nation. And again, I'm so fortunate in, you know, working with two partners that, uh, uh, that I enjoy working with that I think, you know, we can be productive with as a team. So that's going to keep going, right? There's not going to be a, a major fundamental change with that. It's only going to get better, I think. Um, I, you know, this balance of, quote, day job, whether it's related to guitar or not, in my case, again, I've been so lucky that everything I've done has been part of this. Um, you know, I do... I do like to play out and I, I you know, I, I, I would rather do more of it than less of it. Let's put it like that. Uh, I, you know, this project with Doug has been really fun. I'm, I'm way overdue with another solo project. So I have to get going on that. And I've been saying that for an embarrassingly long time. Um, and uh, so I, I don't really see a big fundamental change. Um, you know, uh, my, my daughter is now 15. So probably in a few years, it'll be easier to go away for longer periods of time. So, you know, perhaps that'll be a factor. Um, but uh, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, my my long term plan is to keep doing what I'm doing because I really like doing it. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of it. You know, uh, there isn't. I don't. Yeah. So again, I've been so fortunate in that whether it's working for a magazine, whether it's you know, I had this sort of intense in between period between after I was laid off at acoustic guitar before Peggy Nation really kicked in, I was freelancing for basically every guitar magazine out there, right? I was writing for guitar players, writing for Premier Guitar. I was writing for a little bit for Fretboard Journal. I was writing for two magazines in Germany, in German, which was new to me. Um, and uh, that was all related. You know, I've done, I still occasionally do a little uh, translation work for Peter Finger's company, Acoustic Music Records. Um, and I really do it just because I like being part of that family and, and, and Peter is a friend and, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's just a nice little thing to stay connected in that way. Um, so, yeah, I've done so many things around this and um, I think it's always going to be, there's going to be periods where I do more of one thing and less of something and it just sort of switches around. But ultimately, I think... Uh, I'm I'm in too deep to make a major change. <laughs> well, I, I, guess, I guess what I was wondering is 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 you're when we talk to some people, um, they go back and they say, oh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I didn't have access to the records or the music right. or the instruments, and now Peghead Nation is out there making access to the lessons so easy for anybody. Right. The music is available for anybody to listen to. Sure. The instruments that are being made, you can get really, I mean, you look at some of the inexpensive instruments. Well, they're that are the, they're the right best now. instruments ever made. Yes. So it, it's like everything seems to be gearing towards an incredible renaissance and resurgence of this kind of music and, yeah. and acoustic players. But on the other side of the coin, there are fewer places to play. Absolutely. 
fewer people that are interested in listening, it seems sometimes. Yeah. No, absolutely. That, that's all I was trying to get at is what how you're looking at all this, what your well, thoughts. Well, I think I mean certainly that that is a challenge, right? Because we are uh, so focused on, especially the last. I mean, it was such a blessing over the last year to be able to do these events online, right? It's great to be able to. I mean, our whole business is based on you know online instruction, and uh, it's super important for everything we do right i mean we're, ne we're not going back that that certainly is the case but i think we also have to remember like you say is you know get out and and, and meet people right go see shows because you know uh we don't want it to be like the olympics are right now right <laughs> what a mess that is oh. um <laughs> did, you see, did you see any of the opening ceremonies? But just some pictures, but I mean, well, yeah, wow. but there's cardboard. There's nobody people. there. I know yeah, it's cardboard, and it's, yeah. it's, it's. I, I mean, did they get all that from the NFL? And who knows? I, you know, was um, there like a plane that showed up with all these cardboard people on it? Must have. So, um, like I said, you know, I mean, my well, let's let's cut to the chase. My favorite thing in the world to do is to play guitar to people who are enjoying that. Right? I mean uh and so you know we we as artists need those people to come out and and see us listen to us buy our music or whatever i mean buying music is something that we've probably seen the end of anyway but um uh so yeah i think it is super important and i think that is you know partially that is why doug and i decided to you know sort of put a hold on these live stream shows it's because i think when you're when you're in a situation like that and you typically you know when we play in the bay area we'll play for what is it you know between i'm going to say between 15 and 100 people right is about sort of the average audience that we tend to get well if you're live streaming that same show and 10 people decide to watch you online instead of coming to your show that makes a big difference um and yeah, it's great to be able to have your friends in another part of the country or something like that be a part of that. Uh, but I think focusing on having people go back out and see live music uh, is really important. Here, uh, here. You know, now we're still in a weird situation. Are we ready to be in a small club with a bunch of people not wearing masks. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm still not totally comfortable with that. Uh, so I think we're definitely still in a transition period. Um, but you know, things are happening. A lot of things are happening outdoors, and uh, it's super important to support it. Here, here. You go. So that's that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Get vaccinated and listen to some music. And go meet up with your friends and play some guitars because yeah. it's a lot funner when you're doing it with other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have been incredibly gracious with your time. I, well, we it's been say, a lot of fun. We can't say thanks enough. It's it. it these podcasts have taken a, a strange focus in 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 who we're talking to. Um, we talked to James May, mm -hmm. which was unbelievably interesting you know and then and then richard you know every three or four podcasts right. to, to get to get his access I, I just had the opportunity to drive him to southern california for oh, okay uh, 
for a day. And okay. when I told Eric I was doing it, he said, God, it's got to be like a six-hour podcast with Hoover. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and I and I should say, I mean, we really haven't talked much about, you know, Santa Cruz and sort of my relationship with the company. I don't own a Santa Cruz guitar, uh, but I have nothing but respect for everyone at Santa Cruz. And I consider Richard and Carolyn good friends. And, uh, you know, every time I've spent time with with Richard and Carolyn and everyone else down there, it's just very special. And and you know uh, the, the the history and the importance that Richard has sort of in American steel string guitar just can't be overstated. Of you know really being being part of and in many ways being responsible for this resurgence of handmade high end instruments. Uh, you know, I think most people in our world universally recognize that, uh, but it really can't be overstated. And and he is so fun to be around. He's so f willing to share his information, and uh, and the shop is amazing. I mean, I have you know, it's it's quite possible that I've been to more luthier shops and guitar factories than anybody else in in the last 25 years and you know i see these little differences in all the shops and the santa cruz shop is really really great you know it's a, i mean that's not to say that there aren't other great shops right all these sort of mid-level uh production shops whether it's santa cruz callings uh you know all those shops they all have figured out their own ways but that's the thing everyone has figured out their own ways and and richard's done a thing that no one else does uh, in, in building the guitars that they way the way they do it. And, um, and that's just really, really cool. It's a, it's a really incredible industry to be a part of and be around because it really is just made up of craftsmen and people that care. And, you know, there's very few people in this side of the thing that are ugly or are just not 100% in with both feet. Well, everyone's in it because they're passionate about this thing, right? No yeah. one, uh, I shouldn't say no one, but uh, you know, very few people go to go to school to uh, to to be a Richard Hoover, right? You can't you can't do that. You you know, you, people don't people don't grow up thinking I'm going to run a guitar company. Usually, you know, people people snowball into it because they like the guitar, because they like to play, because they you know they they start tinkering with stuff. And so I think the passion always takes a gets ahead of sort of the, the 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 economics of it right it, no one would do this if they were thinking about <laughs> making a living with this right because that usually doesn't kick in until you're well into this uh yeah, into yeah. this this endeavor and um and so it, it the passion has to be there and uh that's what makes the industry special it's that and it's this willingness to share information that i think has been really incredible and it's a thing that's unique to american guitar making you don't see it in europe the, uh, what i've seen there is that a lot of times there's still a lot more kind of industry secrets and people not wanting to talk about how they're doing things where you know like the you know the, the things bob taylor has done with uv cured finishes and cnc and sharing that information with other people in the industry is legendary it's amazing he's elevated everyone else and i think richard's done similar things at his level of building guitars uh that has really helped everyone else out and you know together we're stronger so gotta love the work because the stock options suck well yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, that's that's really kind of where it's at. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. That's, that's well, thank a, you, guys. 
great thing to leave on. Um, we will uh, make sure that everybody has access to you and knows how to find yeah. you and um, knows where to uh, sign up for a free month. Santa, Santa Cruz will be the promo code. And there you go. Do that. Yeah. Thank okay. You, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll talk okay. soon. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Day. Bye. All right. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar.